you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We will look at um, verse 8 this morning. <clears throat> and uh, let me pray, then we'll read it. <clears throat> Father, you have been faithful to us uh, forever, uh, working in us as we hear your word, especially. Um, so we pray that you would be at work in your spirit now, that your uh, spirit would work in our hearts again, even now as we consider your word together this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. Um, all right, so... Uh, you've, you're probably familiar with the, the tale of Arthur, uh, Arthurian legend, Merlin, I think it was, who uh, said this, that only the pure in heart can wield Excalibur, right? The, the sword that's maybe, maybe it's a little bit magical, maybe it's just symbolic, but uh, only the pure in heart can wield Excalibur and draw the sword from the stone and use it to uh, rule the kingdom and lead it uh, to real unity and peace. Uh, the never-ending story. Only someone with a pure heart can safely pass the sphinxes with the laser beams coming out of their eyes uh, to reach the oracle beyond it, right? Never-ending story. Only the pure in heart. Uh, Shazam! Only the pure in heart can receive the wizard's magical powers. Uh, All the stories talk about unicorns only approach those who are uh, pure in heart, right? Um, So it's a recurring motif. It's a trope in so many stories. Only the pure in heart can do this, the most important thing in a story, the, the special thing in a story. And the hero, the one who has the pure heart, is usually some little child, you know, someone who hasn't been corrupted by too many years in this world. Um, someone, uh, you, nobody would have ever guessed that it would be this little child who would come along and pull the sword out of stone or whatever it is. It takes an impossibly unique person, right? A a special person to meet this qualification, to be pure in heart. Uh, But someone can always be found in the story, so isn't that good? That's nice. Um, But in the real world, I think it's a different story. I don't know of anyone that I would call pure in heart. I don't know anyone personally. I can't think of anybody in the world at large that I would call pure in heart. And that's a painful thing to admit because it includes me, right? Uh, I don't know anybody who's pure in heart, including me. So when Jesus is talking about the blessed life in the kingdom of heaven here, uh, it seems like he's talking about a practical impossibility when he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Who is he even talking about? (laughs) Uh, As it says in the Proverbs, who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? Who can say that? It's a rhetorical question. No one can say that. No one can say, I've made my heart pure. So what's Jesus talking about here? Um, Well, let's define some terms and see how the Bible talks about purity of heart. So first of all, uh, Jesus really often uh, talks about the heart. In Luke um, chapter 6, he says that the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right, so what is the heart? Jesus uh, doesn't just talk about the heart as the physical blood-pumping organ that's at the center of your physical body, right? He doesn't just talk about it in those terms. He talks about it uh, metaphorically, I guess, with uh, regard to the spiritual life of a person, 
So the heart in the scriptures, the heart, the way Jesus talks about it, is the innermost reality of your life. It's the core of who you are on the inside, right? It's the seat of your affections. It's the source of your actions. So a good heart, Jesus says, produces good things. Kind words come from a good heart, from a kind heart. Brave deeds come from a courageous heart. Loyal actions come from a loyal heart, and so on, right? So, uh, whereas, on the other hand, an evil heart produces evil things, harsh words, uh, selfish and harmful actions, and so forth. So Jesus identifies uh, the heart as the source of our life, the source of our words, the source of our actions, and he identifies a really big problem when he talks about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, uh, which is when the, uh, the internal and the external, they don't seem to match up, right? When you put on a show of good actions, but they come from a bad heart, from bad motives. That's hypocrisy. Jesus has a lot to say about it. He says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you uh, religious hypocrites, self-righteous religious people, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you're like whitewashed tombs, which appear outwardly beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And that word is the same uh, word as purity. It's impurity, right? So on the outside, who whitewashes a tomb? Who pressure washes that, that kind of thing to make it look beautiful? Because what's on the inside is dead people's bones and all kinds of impurity, And so he says, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So a hypocrite might fool other people, might fool even himself into thinking that he has a pure heart, that what's going on on the inside is good and right. But Jesus says that the heart of a hypocrite is impure. That's what he says. The heart of a hypocrite is impure, like the inside of a creepy crypt. It might look good to the external observer, But in reality, it's rotten to the core. So many uh, religious people, like the Pharisees who opposed Jesus, uh, can can become convinced that they're good. Because they're, you know, on the outside, they're good. Because of their external observance of God's law. But Jesus exposes the heart of hypocrites, like the Pharisees here. He, He exposes their hearts, what's really true of them on the inside. And again, he says in Matthew 15, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, His people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So the heart is meant to be close to God. That's what Jesus says. That's what Jesus wants. The heart is supposed to be close to Jesus. That's the most important thing in a human life. And a right heart is then meant to bear fruit in words and actions that truly honor God because they reflect a real relationship with God. So there's something in religious hypocrisy which is especially poisonous or especially corrupt because the religious hypocrite takes what is good and he uses it for evil ends or uh, cloaks the evil of his heart in good trappings to pass it off as good. It's really bad because the religious hypocrite might even say he wants to see God. That might be his explicit statement. But then uh, when he actually catches a glimpse of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, And when Jesus pulls back the curtain on the religious hypocrite's heart and reveals his own heart to him, 
He spits deadly venom at God. Turns out the religious hypocrite is just pretending, not acting. You see that in the Gospels. People who say, we're right with God. When they actually meet him, they kill him. So religious hypocrites, they're pretending, they're acting, and and usually their motives are so muddled and they're so self-deceived, they aren't even aware of the fact that their hearts are impure until they come face-to-face with Jesus and then it's exposed. And then the best thing the religious hypocrite can do is is to repent of his impure heart and die to his self-righteousness and seek to draw near to God in truth. Even so... Repentance doesn't exactly solve the problem of impurity. It doesn't go all the way to fix this problem in us because we know uh, a lot of us here are real Christians who have struggled with divided hearts and we've struggled with impure motives, right? Tainted, mixed motives. We struggle with being ambivalent toward God. Sometimes, yeah, great. Sometimes, meh, not interested. Uh, We struggle with doing apparently good things but for bad reasons, to get noticed, to feel good about ourselves. We struggle with doing outright bad things, just breaking God's law blatantly because, you know what, we wanted to. We struggle to keep our hearts close to God, which is the most important part of it. We struggle to keep our hearts close to God. So how can any honest person hear this beatitude as good news, especially when we know that the scriptures really emphasize everywhere the significant difference between Purity and impurity. Uh, Think of the purity laws in the Old Testament. Got whole sections of the Old Testament devoted to purity laws. God said it very clearly to the high priest, Aaron, in Leviticus 10. He said, you are to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. It's like saying the impure and the pure. You are to distinguish between these. And so there there are clean animals and there's unclean animals. And there's... Clean foods and unclean foods. And, you know, dead bodies are unclean. You don't touch those. Uh, Certain bodily fluids are unclean. Lepers with their skin diseases are unclean. They're impure, right? They're impure. And the big drawback to being impure, the big drawback to being unclean, is that it means you can't come into the tabernacle. It means you can't come into the temple. You can't come into God's presence if you're impure. That's the only thing that really matters about purity and impurity. There's a significant difference that God tells us. You must distinguish between these things. And the only thing that really matters about it is that impurity means you're far from God. The unclean and impure, they need special sacrifice to cleanse them and purify them. They need this unblemished, totally pure, spotless animal to die as a substitute so that they could draw near so that they could live in God's presence again. God commanded these purity laws, you know, not just because he likes some animals and not others, not just because some foods are good for you and some foods are bad, not just because, you know, certain external things are just icky and gross. You don't want to touch those things or eat those things or whatever, right? He gave these laws to teach us about the purity of heart that would be required to enter God's presence and to see God to know him, to understand him, and relate to him. So Jesus points this out in Matthew 15. He says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled 
But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. It's not the clean or unclean foods, right? That's all meant to be a picture of of what purity and impurity really is. It proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It's just sort of running through the Ten Commandments, really. So purity laws were meant to show us how our hearts are impure, how impure hearts produce things in our lives that are contrary to God's law, how we can have no true fellowship with God in our impurity, how we need a pure substitutionary sacrifice in order to enter into God's presence. So as Lydia read in our Old Testament reading from Psalm 24, the real question is, who can go into God's presence? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Because we're looking around, and if you're anything like me, you know nobody in this world has a pure heart. They don't have what it takes to stand in God's presence. Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That describes one person. Jesus is the only one with an undiluted heart, with an unalloyed, unmixed, undivided, unmuddled, pure heart. He is no hypocrite. With Jesus, what you see is what you get all the way down. His purely good heart produces purely good things in his life with God. He obeys God gratefully and joyfully and perfectly. He loves God with all his heart. And that is what purity of heart really means. It really means love. Uh, It really means true love to God and a a true love to your neighbor, which is like your love to God, really. So Paul says in 1 Timothy, the aim of our charge, the thing that we want to do, he's talking to Timothy as his pastor here, as pastors, as ministers of the gospel, the thing we want to accomplish, the aim of our charge is Love that issues from a pure heart. Love that issues from a pure heart. This is why this particular blessing lines up with this description, right? Why the pure in heart will be blessed to see God. Because only the one who truly loves will know and see and be able to relate to the God who is love. Only the one who truly loves purely will see the God who is pure love in his being. And so Jesus is the only one who can can lay claim to that blessing, the happiness, the beatific vision of God, the blessed vision of God. He alone can stand in God's presence. He alone can see the God of love because he alone lives by this pure heart of love. But he didn't come into the world just to show that off, just to have that for himself, right? To have a pure heart for his own sake. He came into the world to share his purity with us and the blessed vision of God to share that with us, even at the cost of his life. So Jesus is this spotless lamb of God that the unclean, the impure need sacrificed in order to reconcile us to God. His blood washes us from our impurities, washes away every spot and stain. So if I'm honest, um, I have to admit that I am impure 
in ways that I cannot change. I agree with Proverbs 20. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I'm clean from my sin. I have no hope of that in God's sight, not in myself, purifying my own heart. I have no hope of that in myself, but our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in the spotless Lamb of God, who is pure with God's own purity. He is pure with God's own purity. He's sacrificed for our impurity. His pure heart counts for us, and he purifies our hearts through the purity of his own heart. As with all the Beatitudes, uh, which are first and foremost about the blessed life of Jesus himself, we have this blessing vicariously through the pure-hearted Jesus. That's how Christianity works. It's a vicarious life in Christ. We're blessed to participate in his blessed life with God. We're made happy with God's own happiness when the pure heart of Christ himself becomes ours through faith. So then our sanctification, you know, that idea of growing in a life that looks more like Jesus' life, actually your heart changing, your mind changing, your words and your actions really changing to... uh, be mirrored after the pattern of Christ himself, our sanctification means the holiness and purity of Christ himself coming alive in us, coming alive in us more and more, so that we come more and more to truly love God and to truly love our neighbor from the heart, not just in lip service, not just like the religious hypocrites who want to feel good about themselves, but for God's sake, to love for God's sake with God's own purity in in God's own spirit, in the power of God's own spirit. So in this life, that sanctification, that process, it's a process. It's a more and more thing, right? It's a growing thing. It's not a once and for all perfected and completed thing in this life. Even though our hearts will never be perfectly pure in this life, we can hear the words of this beatitude. Through faith in Jesus, and only through faith in Jesus, can we hear the words of this beatitude as good news And know that because Jesus is pure in heart, we shall see God. Again, as Psalm 24 said, the generation of those who seek his face. That's the special, super important part of this story, right? Like like pure-hearted Arthur being able to pull the sword from the stone, doing that thing that's super unique, that requires that pure heart. Pure-hearted Jesus is able to see God. That's the super important part of the story in the scriptures, the story of this world. Pure-hearted Jesus can see God, and he makes it so that we'll see God. He'll receive blessing from the Lord, as it said in Psalm 24, and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such as the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. That's the, that's the great longing of the pure-hearted. The great longing is to see him. Soren Kierkegaard said that the purity of heart is to will one thing, not to have your heart divided, not to have it mixed, all these different motives pulling you in every direction. Purity of heart is to will one thing. A heart that is pure, without any mixed motives, wants one thing. And in the Bible, that one thing is explicit. Psalm 27, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I, I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's the one thing I want. So R.T. France, commentator on this, he says, The vision of God is the goal of the pure in heart. The vision of the God who is love is the goal of the pure in heart. The Bible makes it clear the only way to have a true vision of God is through Jesus. 
He says of himself, if you, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him because whoever seen me has seen the father. So because Jesus is God, he reveals God in his divinity. And because Jesus is the pure hearted human being, perfectly reflecting God's image, he reveals God even in his humanity. And for now, that's a matter for our faith, that we can see God in Jesus, really with the eyes of faith. Because he's not here in front of us. But one day it shall be a matter of sight, as Job says in in, uh, chapter 19. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, after I die... Yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, my heart faints within me. So because pure-hearted Jesus was raised from the dead and exalted into God's glorious presence, seeing God now with his human eyes, his people shall also be with him and see God with our human eyes when the Redeemer comes to raise us from the dead, when he stands on the earth again. The Apostle John writes about this in Revelation 22. He's speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, that ultimate future, that glorious future that we have to look forward to because of the grace of God in in Christ. He says that they will see his face. They will see God's face. Some people say, well, God has no face. We'll never see God. We'll only see Jesus. God does have a face because Jesus has a face. And Jesus is God. Seeing Jesus is seeing God. That's what he said. That's what Jesus said. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, to gaze upon the face of God in Christ among his people in glory. And that's going to happen because Jesus promised it. So happy with God's own happiness are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed when we consider the purity of your son, Jesus his, uh, his completely pure heart. We can't even imagine it. And we thank you that you have called us to live by faith with the purity of Christ's heart vicariously through the Spirit. Even though we can't imagine it, we can't muster up the feelings of a pure heart in, in ourselves, you've called us to live this life vicariously with Christ's own heart. That's our only hope for coming to know you, the God of love and to see you face to face. So we pray that you please help us to repent of our own impure hearts more and more throughout this life and make our single longing the joy of seeing you face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.